This is episode number 63 of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jesse Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Hey friends, it's Jesse jumping in here before we get to today's show with Dr. Brooke. I am so excited to announce that my online course for beginning or more advanced fitness and health professionals called the Postnatal Fitness Specialist Academy is now open for enrollment. Registration will close on Tuesday, April 23rd for at least another six months. The Academy is a fully online training course for those who best want to support postpartum people in fitness, exercise, and their whole health. You will learn how to assess for, modify for, and have the language for various core and pelvic floor dysfunctions, including diastasis recti, pelvic organ prolapse, and incontinence. You will learn how to coach someone and program for someone in fitness who has had a vaginal or cesarean birth and what factors to be aware of depending on how their birth or recovery occurs. You will learn considerations and strategies for building or growing your business in person or on or in an online capacity. And you will learn how to approach postpartum exercise and health coaching from a positive body image and health at every size perspective. All the details for the Postnatal Fitness Specialist Academy are in the show notes of today's episode, episode 63. And you can reach out to me via email or on Instagram or Facebook if you have any questions. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome on to another episode of To Birth and Beyond. It's Jesse Mundell. And Anita Lambert. Today, we are so lucky to have our friend Dr. Brooke on with us to talk all things birth control. We are going to be talking about pregnancy prevention methods, more permanent methods of birth control, and beyond that, how they might impact our hormonal function and balance, and all the things Dr. Brooke thinks we need to know regarding this topic. So thank you so much, Dr. Brooke, for being on with us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I am going to give you a quick intro and then we will let you tell us more specifically about what you are doing, what your day-to-day looks like, uh, and where where you're at at this stage of your career right now. So Dr. Brooke attended Seattle, Washington's Bastyr University, where she earned a doctorate in naturopathic medicine and a master's in acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine. Her areas of expertise include female health, hypothyroidism, and autoimmunity with specialties in PCOS, Hashimoto's, and menopause. Prior to attending Bastyr, Dr. Brooke received a BA in biology from Seattle Pacific University and has a partially completed doctor of pharmacy from Washington State University. She is well-versed in prescription medications and takes a balanced approach to using both conventional and alternative therapies. After graduation from Bastier, Dr. Brooke was Director of Health and Wellness for a chain of fitness centers in Seattle. There, she created and implemented a successful wellness and weight loss program and further developed her expertise in strength training and exercise. 
You can listen to Dr. Brooke along with Sarah Fergroso each week on their podcast, Better Every Day with Sarah and Dr. Brooke. Dr. Brooke maintains a private practice and lives with her two adorable daughters and funny man, Joe Larson, in NYC. So beyond that, you're probably the smartest person I know. (laughs) I'm not exaggerating a little bit. If I have any questions about hormonal stuff, which comes up a lot for myself and for my clients, you're always the first person I turn to. And if any of my clients ask about thyroid things, I always just Google Dr. Brooke thyroid and just read through the host of articles (laughs) you have written and something will usually fit for them. So again, thank you for being on with us. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what life in your practice is looking like today? Yeah. um, Well, uh, things changed a lot after my last baby. So I have two little girls. My youngest one is like we were saying off air. She's almost five, which sounds crazy to me. She'll be five in July. Um, But after, so backing up like 10 years ago when I got to know Jesse and it wasn't quite that long ago, I guess, but um, got to know Jesse was writing for Girls Gone Strong and part of the advisory board. And I co-wrote a book with another personal trainer and that sort of broadened my reach for my practice, obviously. So I went from having just local clients with a handful um, of leftover clients from Seattle that I worked with over the phone to having most of my patients not be in New York City. So I switched everything to a virtual practice, which has given me a lot of freedom as a mom. I cut down, you know, a 45 minute commute every morning into the city. I really was much less stressed. Um, You know, we're always looking for telling women to you know, decrease their stress or work on their stress or manage their stress. And I didn't realize just like maintaining an office and making sure it was clean and there was water out and like, you know, tea and all of that stuff and cleaning up at the end of the day, all of that just kept me away from home, you know, another extended period of time. So making everything virtual has been, was a huge shift for my stress level, you know, not everyone's cup of tea to speak with their doctor over the phone. Um, But since most of my patients were local and again, I had two little kids that I wanted to spend more time with that really helps me have more time to go to the gym and has more time with them. And all of us are trying to do a lot of things <laughs> in addition to your listeners, probably also being, being a mom. So that's my practice. And I still see patients, um, again, via FaceTime, Skype or phone. And then, um, I am writing a, well, I've written a book, I guess it's almost done. We have one more round of edits. So Sarah and I have our podcast and then we wrote the book, Hangry. Jesse, I need to send you one of those. We have advanced copies now. Um, and that is taking up a lot of time right now. Um, I also do some online coaching with Sarah in a private group as well. Yeah. That's a lot of things. Uh, It is a lot of things. So for the people that you work with in your private practice, what kind of stuff are they coming to you with? So I don't tend to be the first stop for a lot of women. A lot of times they've gone through other doctors. They've spoken with their primary doctor. They've spoken with their OB, maybe even worked with a number of other more holistic practitioners like a nutritionist or a health coach or something. I don't. So it is changing a little bit. I'm sometimes people's first stop, but it's really, for the most part, it's frustrated women who've tried everything. They don't, they aren't satisfied with the answers. They're getting the answers of like, well, you're just a mom. So of course you're tired or all women feel this way, or you're just getting older, or maybe you should just lose weight and you'll have more energy. Um, Those really dissatisfactory answers that women get to really common. I mean, one of the most common reasons people go see, women see their doctor is because they're tired and it's often just dismissed. And we're going to talk about the pill. If you have anything wrong with your cycle, that's the answer, right? There's not a lot of, um, and not to, 
I don't want to um, put down the doctors that they're working with because they are functioning within a model that has limited tools for those things and they don't have a lot of time and they don't have a lot of skill to coach on nutrition or exercise or stress management. And so those are their tools. And just there's so many female hormone issues for women that those tools just don't work very well. We've got antidepressants if you're tired um, and we've got and maybe something more aggressive like Ritalin. I see that prescribed for tired moms. Um, I know, it's kind of crazy. And um, <laughs> and then we've got the pill for kind of everything else that ails a woman. And not that those things don't work for some women, but for most women, they aren't kind of the whole package in terms of getting um, them relief for everything that they're feeling. And neither of those are addressing the underlying cause for what's going on. And so again, if those work for you, that's totally fine. But for a lot of women, they, they come up pretty short. So that's the women in my practice. And I do see a lot of women with thyroid issues and a lot of women with PCOS and going through menopause. And I have PCOS. If you follow me at all, you know, I talk about that quite a bit. And in the coming years, I will be going through menopause. So I've got a couple of those things. I don't have a thyroid problem. That's kind of the only thing I specialize in that I don't have as of yet. I love it. It's like you, I always say this too. And I say this about my oldest daughter's birth. Like that birth experience that didn't go any way I was hoping for it. It was like all such good information for me to then help more people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love um, something that's on your site and something that you were talking about. And Jess and I talked about this in terms of public health, but for you with hormone symptoms, um, how you have your hormone symptoms may be common, but doesn't mean that they are normal. So just because yeah. your friends are going through bloating, mood swings, low libido, doesn't make it just the way it is. And I loved reading that because I think when we talk about hormones and birth control, there's just so many, you know, this is just the way it is. This is common. But for our listeners to understand kind of normal symptoms versus maybe things you don't have to put up with. So I'm super excited to, to go into that. And we wanted to first talk about um, kind of a variety of different birth control pill methods and kind of what potential impacts it might have on hormone balance um, and how we can support our, our hormone function. So if we start with the birth control pill, can you explain to us the different varieties of birth control pills and how they might function in our body to prevent a pregnancy? Yeah, so first I'm gonna give a shout out to Dr. Jolene Brighton, if you guys follow her and know her. She just wrote a book called Beyond the Pill. So if you are somebody who has a lot of questions about birth control, that's gonna be your guide. It's literally an entire book about birth control. So, um, but that said, I work with women and birth control comes up a lot and helping women get off birth control comes up a lot or fallout from that or the pill being given to kind of like mask other things. So um, there's a couple things to think about. So we can talk about the pill and there's of course other um, forms of birth control too that are, are hormonal and then not hormonal. Um, one thing to always remember about the pill is the majority of women that take the pill are not taking it for birth control. So if you're somebody who's being offered the pill to manage your irregular periods, your painful periods, your heavy periods, your erratic periods, pain, migraines, um, PCOS, any of those things, just to know that that the pill, and it's kind of sold to you as like, well, this will regulate your period, which is not the case at all. It will give you a predictable bleed that is not a real period, and it will absolutely shut down your own hormone production. That's how it works. So if you're thinking of taking it to manage any other hormone symptoms, again, like no judgment. If that works for you and that's what you want to do, great. But I don't 
I don't like the way it's presented to women as like this will regulate your hormones because it's just flat out not true and it does not fix anything. So if you're looking for it to alleviate some symptoms, hoping that it will get better, when you come off the pill, your hormone issues will still be waiting for you. Sometimes worse, for example, women with PCOS are always given the pill. And one of the things that pill the pill does is increase inflammation, which is like the root cause of PCOS. So that's not necessarily um, <clears throat> our best option. It's also, you can have a lot of, you know, just a lot of like the rebound symptoms, rebound um, issues coming off the pill, like the high androgens and some of the, like the breakouts and the hair loss. Those are already things that women with PCOS <laughs> deal with. So for a lot of women, you know, especially with PCOS, you're kind of getting the pill to quote unquote regulate something and that's not exactly how it works. And in the case of PCOS or endometriosis, things like that that have, you know, inflammation and some of these things kind of as their root cause, we can definitely be exacerbating that issue, especially in the long run. So thinking about why you might want to be on the pill, if you, you know, there's definitely times in a woman's life where you know, she, that's like the best option to not get pregnant. It's the best option to clear up acne or whatever. And they're not really in a position to go after it in another way. But if you do want to go after it in another way, just understand there's a lot of other things we can do to help regulate your hormones and that the hormones in the pill are not the same as the hormones in your body. So you're told that it's estrogen and progesterone. So the two types of pills are an estrogen and progestin combo. And this is confusing because we use the term estrogen like it doesn't matter if it's your estrogen, my estrogen, a cow estrogen or synthetic estrogen, it's all just still called estrogen. Um, progesterone has its own name and that's the progesterone that you make or a natural bioidentical derived from a plant. But the progestin in a pill or in birth control pill is a different molecule. Like Google the chemical structure of those two, they don't, they're just not the same thing at all. Um, but it's sort of told to you that like this is, you know, this is progesterone and estrogen, and it's really, really not. And so there's, so we don't want to make the mistake that taking the pill, let's say you don't have a lot of estrogen because you're not ovulating, um, and you don't have a lot of progesterone because you're not ovulating, taking those pills is not the same, and they're not going to have the same effects as your own hormones. So that's a really common misunderstanding. I think women think, well, I'm taking estrogen and progesterone because that's what's in my pill. So what the pill does, and there's, again, there's two ways. So we've got the estrogen and progestin combo pill, which is the most common for sure. For women that don't do well on that, and they don't do well with that extra estrogen or their breastfeeding, they get prescribed what we call the mini pill, which is progestin only. And it's important to know that that's only about 60% effective, according to some of the research. So that's, um, as far as birth control, not great. The regular pill is considered very effective for preventing pregnancy. So those two are a little bit different. And if you're a breastfeeding mom, and you want to take the pill, that would be the one that they give you. Um, that one tends to have a little bit more issues with breakthrough bleeding, and there's different, and again, it's not quite as effective as um, the combo pill. So there are different risks with those two different hormones. So this, when we talk about the pill, we're talking about the combo pill, and we know it does a couple of things. When we increase our risk for cancer, we for a number of different cancers, we increase our risk for stroke, for heart issues. We know it drives up inflammation. So I think not to scare everyone who's listening, who's taking the pill, but it's given to us just like, like there's not even hardly a conversation. When I was 16 and having like my PCOS stuff, I, I think the word PCOS was like mentioned. It definitely was not explained. And I was just given the pill and all my friends took it. And there was you know, there's this thing called informed consent in medicine where we're supposed to tell you what the risks are. And I just, that's not really a conversation that happens with birth controls just handed out like it's 
very benign. And again, it can be for some women, but I think it's just interesting how it has all these well-researched side effects. You do, there are risks to taking it like any medication. And it's sort of just, you know, it's handed out just in the fashion and in a feeling where it just feels like no big deal. So just to know there are some risks for sure. Now, if you do stay on the pill, there are some nutrients that are going to get depleted and you can supplement with those to kind of support yourself while you're on the pill. If you're coming off the pill, you'd want to replace some of those. We can talk about that um, in a moment, but just to kind of talk about what the pill does. So sometimes you hear that the pill tricks your body into being pregnant and that's not, I mean, you guys know pregnancy is a whole host of changes, immune changes, hormone changes, uh, physiological changes. It's not quite as simple as just faking out pregnancy, but it is, a high enough level of hormone that it tells your brain thinks that you've already ovulated. So it stops sending the signal. So that's kind of how that works. Now that is not hormone regulating, right? That is hormone shutdown. And so that's very different than how it's given to women, right? Like this will regulate those crazy painful periods. And so it really is just a shutdown causes your body to be a little bit confused. It has um, some impacts on other hormones. Um, So estrogen, when we have a lot of estrogen in our symptom system, whether you're taking it or you have it on your own or you don't metabolize it well, you're going to get um, uh, often a decrease in your free thyroid hormone. So in that whole thyroid cascade, we want the active free T3. At the end of the day, that's what we're trying to get to. And those free levels are often depressed. When we have a lot of estrogen around, it creates more protein to bind up all that hormone and thyroid can kind of get caught in the mix there. And so depression, weight gain, some of the hair loss, some of the things that women might think we're going to get helped with going on the pill can actually get a little bit worse. The pill does carry some risks of depression, especially in young girls um, and suicide risk, which is when most of us started taking it was in high school. Um, but a lot of symptoms can that are part of the pill or part of the fallout from after taking the pill can be tied back to some of the thyroid um, issues. And then, of course, the inflammation. If you guys follow me, you always hear me say inflammation is the great hormone mess maker. And so anything that drives inflammation, it can impact cortisol and insulin and thyroid and all of your other hormones. So with the progestin-only pill or with the Marina or the Skyla, um, some of those other progestin IUDs, then we have just some increased risk and blood clots and weight gain and some things that are just unique to that progestin itself. So, did I answer all? We can go back. There's yeah. more. There's so much to say <laughs> about so the pill. There's so much more. <laughs> no, this information is so important and everything you're saying, I'm nodding my head because I was given the pill at 15, irregular periods, heavy bleeding, cramping, like painful periods. I think that was the gist of why I was going in. And yeah, like no informed consent. It was just here, take this, it will fix those things. And then I was on it for 10 years and coming off of it and trying to get pregnant. I've talked about it before on the show, but there was just a cascade of things that happened after that point. It took a long time to sort out because again, as you were saying, the pill just masked the band-aid solution to all the underpinnings that was happening. Well, one thing to remember with young girls, and we all should remember this as mothers, is women are, we're supposed to go through puberty. Like it, their irregularities in a cycle in 
high school and puberty is normal. And it takes a bit for us to get in sync. And I think that especially now as our kids' stress levels are going up, um, it's even, I feel like the academic pressure is 10 times worse than when I was a kid and the social pressure and social media. And I mean, we're seeing depression and suicide risk right now going up in teenage girls and middle school girls. And so I think, you know, that's going to impact their cycle too. So if, you know, preventing pregnancy is a whole nother conversation to have with our daughters and we can talk about that. Um, but putting them on the pill, whether it's to regulate a hormone issue or just to be careful. I mean, I have plenty of mom patients who that were, they're not coming to me to talk about the pill, but it comes up talking about their daughters and they're just like, well, I don't want her to get pregnant. She's 18 and in college. And it can be, you know, just important for, it is important for us to go through and sync up those normal, you know, timing things so putting us on the pill so young is i think a real big mistake and then like you said it um it's not fixing anything so we didn't like sort of establish our own rhythms and then we're left with whatever the heck was going on before and most women aren't some, we all know that girl who got pregnant the day she came off the pill right two weeks later she ovulate bam baby no big deal but statistically it can take up to three years and that's on average so some women get pregnant right away some women get pregnant within the first year so it's something true Remember, too, I think when we think about coming off the pill, um, what our plan is, because most women, when we're ready to have a baby, we're like, now, that would be great. I want one now. Um, so we're trying. Um, and it doesn't, as we know, it doesn't always happen that way. And so planning that out, too, um, can be important. Yes. Knowing that information, so key. It was not yeah. part of my education whatsoever. Anita, were you on the pill? Yeah, I was going to say, um, when I was 12, I actually, I got my period when I was 10, insanely like heavy painful uh finally my mom went in with me to the doctor i was 12 and they offered me the pill because of it and my mom was like no thanks um but there was no information informed right. information she just from what she knew at the time she was like she's too young she's not doing it so i was on a uh monthly i would take this heavy painkiller basically to just get through my period but then later um, like late teens, early twenties, I made the choice to go on the pill and I was on it until about six months before I got pregnant with my daughter. Um, but even at that point, like there was not much in terms of in like information about it. Cause I was even noticing on your site, like the heavy bleeding can be due to excessive estrogen, poor estrogen metabolism, estrogen <laughs> dominance. And like, never was that ever talked about at any of those And points. 10 is really young, so I think we would call that a precocious early puberty. So then the question is, like, why do you have so much estrogen yeah. in your system? Is it coming in in your food, your water, your, um, you know, food supply, your body products? I mean, the amount of estrogen in, like, body products, probably not that you were putting on, but, like, you know, anything, like, ex super expensive anti-aging cream that's, like, hundreds of dollars a bottle at, like, Saks or some nice department store that works like a dream definitely has estrogen in it and you won't know because it's not on the label and then I do like your saliva panel is like off the chart and I'm like you didn't tell me you're taking estrogen um and I'll go ahead and say this um the beef tallow skin products that are out so Sarah my business partner comes from the paleo world everyday paleo was her brand and that's where she got her start and so in that world um the there's a couple of lines of skincare that are using beef tallow so beef fat and I love the idea I mean, I'm a girl from Montana who grew up with cattle ranching families. Like, I love the idea of using the whole animal. But what I saw in my practice when all these products came out was women, um, like I had several women who started getting a period. And I was like, great, we're finally getting a period. And then I looked at their saliva panels and I'm like, holy smokes, your estrogen is off the chart. 
what are you using that's new? What are you doing? And they're like, oh, I got all of this skincare stuff for Christmas and I've been using it and then I got my period. And so it was really not expected. I wouldn't have necessarily thought that. And I don't think any, I ended up on the phone with a vet, with a bovine endocrinologist. So cow endocrinology at Duke university. Cause one of my patients was a veterinarian at, um, taught at Duke. So she got me, cause I was like, I don't even know how cow estrogen, how do we even metabolize? She's like, nobody knows how humans metabolize cow estrogen cause we're not typically rubbing it on our skin. Um, so it was probably not something that any of us expected, but, um, yeah, we can be exposed to so much estrogen in our environment. So that one's a little bit new, but plastics, fragrances, um, you know, any grown up around us using any kind, like even progesterone cream, there can be some conversion, not directly, but sort of indirectly. So there's a lot of estrogen in our food supply and our environment. And that is one of the reasons I, our kids are coming up with early and earlier periods. That is so interesting. I yeah. didn't know that because I feel like I hear more and more that girls are getting their period sooner. So yep. that's very interesting. There's so many what we call environmental endocrine disruptors, and many of them have estrogen-like activity on their own. Some of them, you know, have thyroid impact. And yeah, it's when you think of preservatives for the most part, like parabens and phthalates, fragrance is another big one. Um, a really good resource if you you guys want to le learn more. Um, my friend Laura Adler has a website called Environmental Toxin Nerd. She's a, um, a nerdy science girl that loves talking about this. And she's got some really good resources. Um, she's got resources for where you can get your water tested and kind of like the chemicals you should look at. We've had her on our podcast um, once or twice. And yeah, there's just so much, unfortunately, in our food and environment that our kids are exposed to. And we were too. I love that you brought that up about the tallow because I had <laughs> this jar out because I wanted to ask you about it because mm. I heard you say that maybe, I don't know, a year and a half-ish ago, you were talking about it on your podcast, Better Every Day, and I had been using the primarily, primarily pure stuff, and I was oh. like, oh, that's so interesting. I had no idea. So it's just yeah. something that I have thought about since then and I've mentioned to my clients in passing as someone, something that they might want to consider or bring up with their healthcare provider as well. But again, just these things that we don't know, we're not educated on, would never consider on our own until someone brings it up to us. Yeah, and I think we think of our hormones as so simple, like, well, I'll just get a blood test. Well, that's you know probably not going to – your exposure from a topical estrogen might show up as an elevated estrogen on your blood work. But keep in mind, your estrogen is different every single day. So it's really going to depend on when they test you what the impact is. And if it's a topical exposure, it's going to show up in saliva really, really high. Um, and, yeah, it's just kind of coming in from so many – places it's kind of ubiquitous and it may be the flat out high level it may be a flat out on your blood might be a flat out high level on serum you can also end up with estrogen problems because you have an unhealthy gut so you don't have the right bacterial balance and you're basically you do something to estrogen that sort of you can think of it like packaging it up like ready for excretion and there's certain enzymes made by bacteria in our gut that can basically unpack it and it can circulate again so your estrogen might be fine on a blood test, but you're getting all the heavy periods and the breast tenderness and all of that stuff. And the, the issue, it's going to look normal on your blood test and the issue is actually your gut. So that's the kind of, 
that's what I do in my practice. So we always want to look at like where it's just so often not as simple as, you know, checking a level on blood work, which is what, if you get that far with your doctor that they're like, okay, I'll go ahead and test it. And then it's normal. And you're still left with like, well, I still have all these symptoms. I don't really, you know, know what to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we were speaking about that recently on another podcast, these blood test levels that come back in the normal range, but that range can be so massive. Yeah, there's so I have a really good guide on my uh, lab, my website that's free, that's a lab guide to your hormones, and it reminds you what days you want to get these tests, because how many women, you know, I don't know if you guys talked to them about this, but I'll see someone's estrogen test, and I was like, well, when did you do this? And they're like, at 8 o'clock on Tuesday at my doctor's office, and I was like, what day of your cycle? You know, like, there's a, it's, and they're like, I don't know, they just, I was complaining about this, that, and the other, and they said they'd check it. But say you check estrogen on, you know, day 26, well, it's going to be low or at least normal. And so we really, with your female hormones, there's very specific times you want to check those levels. Um, and then let's say it's something like thyroid. Yes, there's big ranges. There's sort of disagreement about what's the optimal range. And um, there's a lot of pieces of that puzzle, right? So we want to look at how much are you making? How are you metabolizing it? you know, how much of the like active stuff do you have? There's so many pieces. And so a serum level of a hormone tells us about production if it's done on the right day, but it really doesn't tell us how it's working for you. So we just oftentimes need a much bigger picture. So, you know, my blood work, patients get six vials of blood every time and it's a lot, um, but that's what I need. And that doesn't even look at their sex hormones. I usually check that in urine or saliva. Lots of fluids. We need lots of fluids. Examine. (laughs) So if someone is on the pill, what can we do to best support our health during that time? Yeah. So I don't know if you guys have questions about like other birth control methods, we can kind of go through that too. But if you're taking the pill, you're going to be deficient in a few things like B6. So make sure you're getting usually about 100 milligrams. There are some women that aren't going to do as well with that dose, but that's a good dose. I like the activated form. It's called P5P, most of the places that you'll look. So add that up between what's in your multi, and then, you know, you might need another 50 milligram tablet or more. You can oftentimes go up to like 200 milligrams, but that's not necessary for most. But B6 is a big one. Zinc, anywhere from 15 to 30 should be in your multi. You may need a little bit more than that, at least temporarily, if you're having breakouts or skin issues or anything, hair issues. Um, But zinc, CoQ10 is a big one. Um, I would recommend probably taking a good B vitamin complex in general because you are going to be deficient in B12 and folate for the most part. Always folate, natural folate and not folic acid, um, which is really common. Most of your prenatals have folic acid. Most vitamins do. It's less expensive. Um, But you want to look for something that either says like natural folate, methylfolate, or sometimes it'll say folinate, but just avoid anything that says folic acid. And sometimes now I'm seeing this is tricky. It'll say natural folic acid, which isn't even a thing because natural folic acid doesn't exist. Folic acid is synthetic, but that must be some new way we're trying to get around um, that. So good multi-zinc, CoQ10, 100 to 200 milligrams um, a day, zinc, um, you want to protect your gut. So the one of the big things that happens with the pill is, you know, a lot of impact on, on the gut. So it's a lot of estrogen going in. So eating more fermented foods, if that, if you tolerate those, um, you know, working on taking a probiotic, um, rota- I recommend you rotate your product, your probiotic every three or four months, just so you're getting a variety of strains. People love to see that really big number, like this has like 80 billion and that's important, but they're 
biggest thing you want to think about with probiotics is diversity. So if you come to me and you've taken the same probiotic for four years, like we know you have a lot of that. And if we do a stool test, you'll see that one's like off the charts. Um, so we wanted, it's all about um, variety. Um, when it comes to thyroid, again, making sure you're getting in general um, 200 micrograms of selenium a day. And that's not always in all of your multis. So you want to add a few things like nuts, Brazil nuts tend to be really high in selenium. Other foods are as well. Those are kind of the big ones to think about with the pill. I'm wondering if I'm uh, forgetting any. Um, sometimes I don't really recommend a lot of liver support when you're on the pill because you don't want to necessarily change its metabolism, but kind of gentle things that can, you know, support uh, the liver for all of us are nutrient herbs like milk thistle, pretty safe and effective. And that one can be 100 to 200 milligrams a day. All right, so a quick recap of the things I would put you on if you were on the pills, making sure you're getting 100 milligrams of B6, 15 to 30, maybe even 50 milligrams of zinc, kind of general thyroid support, make sure you're getting those 200 micrograms of selenium between food and your supplements, and a good suite of B vitamins. Again, you might be deficient in folate, um, B6, and B12, and then a good probiotic and making sure that you rotate those to get good diversity and the CoQ10. And that's a pretty good rounded out suite of those. If you wanted to do a little extra liver support, you can, um, so things like milk thistle. And then I would say another thing that's really important when it comes to food is, you know, making sure you have lots of vegetables because that fiber feeds those good bacteria. And that's what's going to help you metabolize the estrogen. So it's not all about the supplements. We want to make sure that you are, you know, really getting good fiber um, in your diet. So Sarah and I usually recommend a pound of vegetables a day, somehow spread throughout the day. And then you do want to be mindful of those brassica veggies or even the like broccoli sprouts are kind of the new superfood on the block. They have a lot of something called sulforaphane. So broccoli, brassicas, cauliflower, kale, all of those tend to have a lot of really good nutrients that help us metabolize estrogen. So you want those to be really high, um, I think for all women, but you know, especially if you were taking any kind of uh, hormones as well. Okay, cool. That's really helpful. Okay, so IUDs, we got like two main kinds. You want to just dive into the... Yeah. Can you explain? So typically the ones that we hear about at least are the Mirena and the copper IUD. Yeah. So can you explain both of those and how they might work in the body? Yeah. So the copper IUD causes basically a low grade inflammation and an irritation of the uterine lining. So it's not really very hospitable for a pregnancy. So there's some issues, right, with causing inflammation. So that's something to think about. Some women, would, that's usually called the Paragard, <coughs> is the brand name for that IUD. A lot of women on that IUD have really heavy bleeding and really heavy cramping. So it's not optimal for every woman. That You know, we don't want really heavy bleeding. Not only is it annoying, that's a real good way to get iron deficient, especially if you just had a baby. Um, and for a lot of us, we don't want to drive inflammation. So it's kind of hard. Not every woman who has an IUD is going to get systemic levels of inflammation, but if you're, say, someone with PCOS or you have an autoimmune disease or you're already prone to inflammation for some other reason, then creating more inflammation may not be the best thing. And some women do tolerate it fine. So it's non-hormonal. So in that regard, it's one of our best options. Um, but it, And then when we have copper in our system, you could get a zinc deficiency. So we definitely want to at least put you on some zinc, like, again, 15 to 30 milligrams a day. So that one has some promise because it's non-hormonal, which is nice. So there's, and it's, 
I don't remember the stat on this one. It's fairly effective. Um, and again, you kind of don't have to think about it, right? You don't have to take a pill every day, put it in for several years and just have it checked in terms of physician. And um, so it's a worth a try for some women because again, it's non-hormonal, but there are potentially some downsides. And the biggest one is just the side effect of the cramping and the bleeding. But again, it could create some inflammation issues. So the other kinds of IUDs are the progestin secreting ones. So again, that's that synthetic progesterone, progest progestin, and it's not real progesterone. So the Skyla and the Marina are the most common ones in this. Um, there may be actually another one in, in Europe that does the same thing. So we're kind of told with this one that it is local. And most women on the marina eventually do not get a period. So some women like that, that they're not having to deal with that. Um, but the idea that it's local, I and mean, we just don't want to, like, it's not like there's no blood supply to your uterus. So I don't even know how that argument really gets made. But obviously, those, there's going to be some systemic impact of those hormones. And um, this is the one that I had. I thought this was a good idea. And I'm not really sure why, because I always did absolutely terrible with the pill. So I'm kind of the poster child for side effects. Like if you want to know what a medication is going to do to someone, worst case scenario, I tend to be that person. So against my better judgment at one point, I tried it. Um, and what I see for, this is true for myself, but with women with the Marina, a lot of times there's no period. There can be a significant weight gain. Mine was about 15 pounds in three weeks, like just and for me, there was a lot of estrogen dominant effects. So there was definitely, I was absolutely having some systemic effects that um, my libido was in the tank. So the synthetic progestins, again, are kind of funky hormones and a lot of women have a lot of side effects from them. So I think that's important too, when we just talk about hormonal birth control, some, you know, people say, well, there's no research that the pill causes weight gain. And we always want to look at like what kind of hormone was in that pill or what kind of hormone was in the IUD. Cause that's going to like the progestins that are in the Marina have some uh, data to support that they're just on their own. They can increase weight gain and you can get sort of a progesterone kind of dominance um, with the water retention and the bloating and the hot flashes and all those things that are not always the best. Um, again, some women tolerate this form of birth control fine too. Um, I think the biggest thing is to just, we don't want to pretend that any of those are really um, super benign, right? We're still putting a hormone into our system. And if you're not getting a period, you're doesn't mean you're not ovulating, but you may not be ovulating. And the, you know, more and more practitioners in my space are talking about, we think of ovulation as the end goal is to get an egg to get pregnant. And the, the end goal of ovulation is to have estrogen and progesterone. The egg is like a whole other piece of it. So how we make our hormones is by having a cyclical cycle. So we get like, you know, the FSH comes up, then the estrogen, then the LH, then the progesterone, and all of that coordinates ovulation. And that's how we get estrogen and progesterone. You're going to get a little bit of those from your adrenals, a little bit of progesterone from your adrenals. Um, we can get estrogen from our body fat. Um, again, a little progesterone from the adrenals, but like the bulk of our sex hormones come from ovulating. So there's times when we're not, you know, we're not ovulating if we're on the pill. Some of us are not ovulating when we're breastfeeding, obviously not ovulating during pregnancy, but we have tons of hormone during that time. All that glorious hair and skin looks so good and libido's good, all that good estrogen around those times. But so if we have PCOS, we're breastfeeding, again, some women will ovulate and have a period breastfeeding, some don't. Um, if we're on hormonal birth control or we're going um, through perimenopause or into menopause, we're not getting like that nice estrogen and progesterone output. And so we want to remember too, when it comes to fertility, there's a siren, you guys, that's okay. Um, if you listen to my show, there's sirens all the time. Um, 
So we want to remember too, many of us are trying to prevent pregnancy um, with hormonal birth control that shuts down our entire system to avoid pregnancy that's going to happen five to six days of the month, right? So we have an egg that's good for a, a day. Sperm can be okay up to five days, sometimes six days. So that's their fertile window that we are avoiding pregnancy for the other like at least three weeks of our cycle. We're suppressing everything to miss to miss something that might only happen um, within the, you know this little teenier window. Um, so I don't know if you guys want to talk about sort of other methods of birth control. Are we there yet? <laughs> we will get there. Yes. Okay. I just want to mention my copper IUD story because it was a bit of a nightmare. I went on a copper IUD probably maybe about four months postpartum after my first. And I just want to reiterate one thing that you said about checking the position of the IUD via ultrasound. I think this is something that is missed basically 100% of the time for people who get IUDs inserted and their OB-GYN doctor, whoever is doing that insertion says, okay, you're good. And that's it. And we know. Yes, exactly. See you in five years when we'll replace it. So checking the position via ultrasound and the guy that I was referred to, I think wanted that to happen six weeks after the insertion. Something else she mentioned that I had no idea about was we want the uterus to feel a certain level of firmness. And that's how she described it to me when the IUD is inserted. So I know a lot of my clients are getting the recommendation for an IUD very early postpartum at that six week Mm -hmm. appointment. And the uterus just might not be um, like the condition of it. The tissue quality might not be at uh, a level where it can support the position of that IUD. Um, It just might not be a healthy place for that, that IUD to be inserted at that time. So early postpartum. I think that is really early. That's like your very first checkup. Um, And as you guys know, pelvic health is not where it's going to be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, No, I would totally agree. I feel I hear that a lot from uh, my clients at their six-week appointment that will get um, brought up and oftentimes happen that appointment or soon after. Yeah, I I don't know the data on... Um, I wonder how much more at risk you are for misplacement where the IUD moves into your uterus or gets dislodged somehow, depending on how early you get it in. I haven't, I haven't looked at that, but yeah, that seems early. Yeah, it is. And I will also say that my copper IUD did come down into my cervix. I have so many terrible stories that I could tell about this, but it came down into my cervix. My family doctor told me that it would still prevent pregnancy. I could feel the end of the IUD. Like when I was inserting a finger into the vagina, I could feel it on the cervix. And I was like, what are you even talking about? Like It was just a terrible situation. So if you are given some of this advice, just question things, please. Yeah. I was going to say one other thing I hear often is, once it's inserted, how long should someone expect to feel symptoms if they do? For example, spotting. Because I have some clients say they've spotted for an extremely long time, like a couple years yeah. after having an IUD in. So what, uh, like, what should people be aware of in terms of any symptoms like spotting? I would say if anything goes on for more than a month, then, you know, you don't want to be bleeding for a month. So, um, yeah. And again, some women, it just doesn't work for some women. There's lots of bleeding, lots of spotting. 
um, yeah, you'll hear those women, they're like, well, I got it in a year ago, and I've just been spotting and randomly bleeding ever since then. Um, yeah, I would say you're probably, it's probably not, it's not going to change, right? If you've been spotting for six months, that's, that is what it is. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what the formal recommendation on that is, but I would say if it's gone on for a couple months, you should get in and talk to your doctor. Yeah, that's great advice. Okay, let's skip ahead to other methods of birth control prevention, such as tracking. So FAM or fertility awareness method tends to be a popular one that we hear about. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah. So one thing that's definitely hard is if for some reason you're not having a normal cycle. So breastfeeding, postpartum, using fertility awareness can be really tricky. So some women, again, like bounce right back to what feels like a pretty normal cycle and they're aware of, you know, their ovulation signs and they're getting a predictable period. They're probably ovulating and having a little bit more hormone balance. I'm someone who get got no period when I was breastfeeding. So I just felt low hormone the whole time. As soon as I stopped, I got a period. Um, so both of my girls, two years without a period when I was breastfeeding because that's how that's how my body works. Um, but so I think that that time is just going to be for some of us really hard. Like I had no signs of ovulation. I had no period. That really wasn't a time I could just rely on listening to my body. So some women do feel that ovulatory twinge and some don't. Some feel it some months and not others. So that's sometimes a reliable, um, you know, correlation for some women you can watch changes in cervical mucus so you can watch that thicker egg white mucus to know that you are again in your fertile window and that's something that you know a lot of women just it happens you kind of don't think about it but we have such great apps now you can enter that other additional information um basal body temperature is another one you can track a little more tedious you definitely have to see several months of temperatures to kind of know what you're doing um the ovulation strips can still be useful even if you're not trying to conceive they can give you some indication um there are women with pcos especially where those are not as reliable some women for whatever reason their lh spike is not robust enough but they still get pregnant i've had plenty of women do their ovulation stick and it didn't work but they got pregnant anyway so they obviously ovulated um you can also check cervical position when your cervix is down a little bit lower you're gonna and it's a little bit softer you're gonna um be that's your time when you're more fertile as well so you can track all of those kinds of things if you're getting a regular period and i think that just requires just like i with food and with other things sometimes we just need to be more of a detective and get to know what our body's telling us and keep track of it and that can be really powerful again if you're getting a normal cycle which some women you know in between babies or just after a baby that's not as as reliable and there are definitely coaches out there that help you uh, with that. We've got kind of the classic book on this was Taking Charge of Your Fertility. You could easily Google this. You can see pictures. You can see videos of what that kind of mucus looks like. And I think that's helpful because I think not every woman is comfortable, like, you know, playing with their cervical mucus. But when you get kind of like, you know, that's what it looks like. And sometimes it's just like with wiping, they notice that it's just a lot more moisture there. It's just good for you to pay attention to those things because it's just like your appetite cravings, not being able to fall asleep. All those things are your hormones talking to you. And this ovulation is a really, really important one. And I do think the cervical position, if you're not, um, I find that with women with PCOS, sometimes their cervical mucus is not quite as reliable and the positioning can be another tool for them. Um, so those are kind of the natural ones. Of course, there's condoms. We kind of forget about condoms. And I think most people in a monogamous, monogamous relationship think they, they, 
we don't need to talk about that anymore. So there, you know, there are definitely some downsides, but if you're not sure what's going on with your hormones, you don't want to do anything permanent and um, you don't want to take hormonal birth control. It's still there. You still have that one. Yeah, we had condoms, diaphragms, and spermicides also on the list. Because, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh-huh. yeah, a lot of my clients, they're, they're in that space where they don't want uh, their hormones to be impacted, but they will be wanting to try for another pregnancy down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, but also condoms feel terrible for them, especially if they are earlier postpartum, breastfeeding, um, perhaps there was some pelvic floor trauma. There's just so much to consider for those things, too. Yeah. Um, and the cervical capsule is smaller, a little more comfortable for some women. Some women, you know, if they have a really sensitive, you know, mouth and vagina, they tend to not do well with some of the spermicides. And latex sensitivity gets undiagnosed a lot because sometimes you're not having a latex reaction on your skin, like when your doctor touches you with a glove, but you do have it if they touch your mouth or your vagina. So, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of things to consider around those things too, but worth a try, especially especially between babies when you're, you know, or even after a baby and you're not like totally sure what the next phase is going to bring. Um, there, and then I think too, just the more you pay attention and the more you start tracking your cycle, the more data you'll have too. I'm most excited about this next one. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say, Jess, did you want it? go into the next one because you have experience with this okay so you're talking about permanent permanent methods of birth control (laughs) one of my favorite topics for people who know that they are done um so having tubes tied tubes removed these are common options for uh for female health um i had my tubes removed at my last c-section because for me it was like 100% for sure no we were done do not want to take any chances like my mental and emotional health cannot handle it so that felt really right for me I know that does not feel good for some people whatsoever but I've had some questions from people wondering if these have impacts on hormone function in some way so when you look at the anatomy of it there's the it's like your uterus sits here like this like right next to your um, ovaries, and they're not attached to your uterus. There's this little space, and the egg goes into the tubes like that, and they kind of come around and connect back. So what they're doing with the removal is to either taking the tube and cutting it and tying it, or they just take it out so that egg that comes off can't go anywhere. And so there shouldn't be hormone fallout because your ovaries should be fine. But when you look at it, there's a lot of connective tissue between, you know, your, your parts aren't just floating around or everything would like fall down. There's a lot of connective tissue and it, within that connective tissue, there's a lot of vessels. So theoretically you could damage some blood supply to the ovary in that surgery when we're teasing things out and taking in the surgeons removing that part. And so technically doing anything to your tube should not affect your hormone output that comes from your ovary. But you do hear about women having, I think they call it post-tubal ligation syndrome. So you do hear about women having perimenopausal symptoms and low estrogen after a surgery. So I would say one thing is potential trauma to the blood supply to the ovary. Um, There can be other fallout. I mean, some people do feel just more trauma from surgery. And I think that is an area energetically of our body that's probably more sensitive to kind of, you know, trauma or PTSD kind of things after a surgery. Stress, of course, is going to impact that. So anatomically, no, but you do hear about it happening for sure. 
Yeah, and, and we want to remember too, like, would that have happened anyway? Like, are, did you get your tubes tied at forty-eight, and were you going to be going through a natural perimenopausal time, you know, anyway, or was your stress so high because you're not sleeping after this baby that it, you know, you're having more fluctuations in hormones? Those things could happen too that are probably not directly related, but kind of happen timing-wise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good information to have. I also really want to give a shout out to the vasectomy. Huge fan. I know that you are too, Dr. Brooke. Yeah. (laughs) That is is my choice of birth control. We're still having discussions around that, but um, I feel like it's becoming more common. Do you see that in your practice or in terms of um, (coughs) your patients, like their partner having a vasectomy done or... Um, so my experience with the vasectomy is sort of interesting. Um, my husband can't wait to get his. We just, he doesn't ever seem to be around long enough. He travels all the time and like, we just got new health insurance. So it's like the, before we were going to pay out of pocket and then we were changing insurance. So he wants one and can't wait to get one. And, um, he's a friend of his is going to go with him. They're both going to do it because they're, they're done too. Bunch of babies, um, the two of them. But so Joe, my husband is completely willing um, wants to do it, thinks it's the perfect option for our family. And for him, you know, he knows what it is and he's not scared of it. So I am also a huge fan of the vasectomy because it's so reversible for one thing. So even if you guys have a couple of kids and you're not entirely sure, it is so highly reversible. I can't remember the stats, but it's upwards of 90%. So it is um, very reversible. And you think about like even coming off the pill, our stats are like potentially taking three years to get pregnant. So, um, it's really reversible. It is a, it's not a surgery. It is a very minor procedure. Um, when my experience though, so I'm married to someone who can't wait to get his vasectomy, Sarah, my business partner, her, um, husband already got one and, um, our best friend, one of them's going to go with Joe to get them. They're going to do it together. The other one already has it. So there's all these men in my life who are like, yeah, of course, like that, makes so much sense. And so the women in my practice are women with hormone issues. So you're not coming to me for any reason other than your hormones are already crazy and you don't want to throw more hormone in the mix. Like no one in my practice is coming saying, can you prescribe the birth control pill to me? That's just not what they're here for. Yet the men that they're married to are very reluctant about the vasectomy. So we hear this all the time. I, men, Some men are just unwilling to even have the conversation about it. Some men are just very scared to do it. Um, Culturally, there's definitely some issues with masculinity in certain cultures. And um, there's a lot of fear and I think misunderstanding. It does not lower a man's testosterone. The recovery is about 24, maybe 48 hours with like a little bit of ice. And, you know, it's, I want to be sympathetic to our men. And again, I'm just lucky I'm married to someone who's like not a big deal. I can't wait to get one. Um, Ours has just been logistically finding the time. But um, there's so many men that feel like it's going to decrease their testosterone. They're very scared. And again, I don't want to be too hard on them. But I, quite honestly, I'm, when I'm talking to a woman who's like spending her, hard, her family's hard-earned money to work with me, and she doesn't want to get back on hormones, and she's already had three kids, and they don't want three kids, and, or three more kids, it, and it's like, I don't know, how, I want to grab your husband and shake him that he can't go through 48 hours of discomfort when you've, you know carried babies for nine months times three, nursed babies for a year and a half times three, um, healed your pelvic floor, pushed a, you know, given birth. It's, it's baffles me that, that that's such a disc, that amount of discomfort for men is, um, just not an option for so many families. And 
How long does it take us to recover our pelvic floor health? They're going to feel Definitely better. Definitely not 48 hours. <laughs> Definitely not 48 hours. I mean, well after 48 hours, I was still like peeing my pants constantly every time I laughed or, <laughs> you know, it was... Um, so yeah, it's a definitely a really good option. Um, we did a podcast with Dr. Ralph Esposito. If you have men in your life that want to like have someone like me who talks about hormones all the time, uh, Ralph's a great guy. He's a naturopathic doctor here in New York City. He talks a lot about testosterone and men's health. And we talked a lot about the stats on the vasectomy. And there will be a new kind of vasectomy coming out soon. I don't know. I'm not sure if it's in FDA approval now, or but it will be available soon. Where instead of snipping, so instead of actually making a very tiny incision and, you know, cutting the, the tube, um, they inject like a silicone polymer. And then when you want it reversed, they just inject something else to dissolve it. Wow. So it's no cutting at all. It's just a injection. Um, so that's coming. So I don't know if that will make men feel. I just think there's a misunderstanding about what it is. I think men really feel like it's going to impact their masculinity and their testosterone or their ability to get an erection or any of those things. And it's just not true. Yes. I have very low empathy for people who are nervous about <laughs> vasectomies. Yeah, especially when their partners, their wives, these women have gone through so many things. And Anita and I see this on very intimate levels. Um, I joke that Randy should still go get a vasectomy, even though I had my tubes removed, just so he solidarity. can do something. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay, so let's wrap up here. I know... I know you're a very busy person with a full schedule, so we won't keep you too much longer, but I think a lot of people are probably wondering, is an OBGYN the best person to be speaking about with our options for birth control? Oh, well, I think it's a good place to start. I think that, um, I think sometimes we expect that our particular doctor, because that's who we've always gone to, or that's who's close by, or that who takes our insurance, is the best person suited for us. And sometimes you do have to do a little bit of, you know, doctor shopping. Um, when it comes to birth control, um, they can prescribe it, they can insert it. Um, it's, I think it's important to just have your OB and your, well, your gynecologist be someone that you feel like you can talk to. And as a whole, I find OBGYNs to be some of the most open-minded. They went into this to help women. Like they, you know, intimately there to help women. They're not an endocrinologist or a dermatologist or which, by the way, they're probably the two specialties I see like the least open-minded to anything more natural. So I think if you have a good relationship with your doctor, they can certainly talk to you about what those options are. Um, the Paragard or the Copper IUD is kind of making a resurgence, I think, because there are women who've wanted more non-hormonal options. But I do see a lot of pushback on that one in particular. Like a lot of times they just flat out don't even carry it in their office. So they're like, I'll do it, but I'm going to have to order it special for you. Uh, keep in mind, you can get those at Planned Parenthood. It's always I don't, do you guys have Planned Parenthood in Canada? We don't. Okay, we don't. If you're a U.S. listener, I always like any time we can support Planned Parenthood. But um, so I think it's more about your relationship with your doctor. And then, um, you know, you never want to feel like you're being pushed into something, you know. Like I recently had a checkup and she's like, I see you're not on any birth control. Do you need me to prescribe you something? And I was like, no, thanks. And she was like, okay, great. Like we just went on from it. Um, so I don't think it's a bad place to start with your um for your birth control concerns. But again, remember why you're having the birth control conversation. Are you having birth control conversation because you want an option to not get pregnant? Then 
and you're willing to take hormones, then that's probably the place to do it, to explore those options. And if you are someone who wants to try the copper IUD, you might have to just tell them it's what you really want to do. You don't want to do hormones and they can order it for you. It's not a big deal. It is covered by insurance. It's just not very common anymore, although it is coming back um, a little bit. I don't, your OBGYN or anyone working in the conventional model is not always your best person to get those other answers. You know, like what should you be eating if you have PCOS? What herbs or nutrients are you going to be lacking if you're <clears throat> going through perimenopause that could be helpful? What nutrients do you need to take if you're going to take the pill? And it's not because they don't care about you. That, that is just the tool they don't have. Um, it's just not the way that their model functions and partly because of their education, the perspective they are coming from, also because insurance doesn't reimburse for that. So they've got their hand tied and it's really just... Like you would go to a specialist for, you know, some women go to one woman to cut their hair and someone else to color it, right? And someone else to like wax their eyebrows. Like you go to the person who knows how to do the thing you're going to do. And most people are more satisfied with that experience than going to one person who does all of them. So you may be getting your birth control from your OBGYN, but you might talk to someone like me about well, how am I metabolizing it and can I keep my gut function healthy? So I don't think it's a bad place to start at all. And I, I don't, I really don't like when people in my profession or position or personal trainers i'm seeing this a lot telling women not to go to their endo if they have a thyroid problem because they're going to run the wrong test what we should be telling women is when you go talk to your endo your endocrinologist ask them about these other tests and if they're unwilling to explore things further maybe you need a different endocrinologist we shouldn't be telling women don't go to your doctor but i see this all the time right now in social media we're all trying to be heard right so we're all trying to say something kind of edgy um but yeah, as far as the birth control conversation, I think it's fine. Um, thyroid conversations or what else you can do in another model, what you should eat, what vitamins you should take, you're probably going to talk to someone who knows who does that. Yeah, that's really important information. L couple last things. We have to talk yep. about Hangry, your book. Yes. What yes. are the details? <laughs> so Hangry is the book that Sarah and I wrote. We've been working on this for a couple of years now. I think we, I tried to add up the hours. It was like upwards of 2,000 hours a piece. It's insane. So, um, but we have a book that we're really proud of. So Sarah and mine's work together really focuses on helping women find what's going to work for them because we're all told that, like, well, what should I eat? Well, listen to your body or follow this really restrictive plan. And those are kind of your two options. Um, but most women, our hormones are so deranged that we don't, you know, like Sarah and I say, what if your hormones are telling you to eat cupcakes for breakfast and margaritas for lunch? Um, sometimes we can't. We're, everything is so out of balance that the signals we're getting, we're not really clear on what we should be listening to and what we can do to fix, like, again, simple things like fatigue, period problems, hair loss, dry skin, um, not being happy. That's something else that Sarah and I put a lot of effort into the book. So we have a full strength training, a full nutrition plan that we teach you how to customize it based on whatever hormone issues that you have, but kind of resting all of those habits. We talk about meditation and a lot of mindset stuff, because one of the things we I see is, um, when I'm looking at women dealing with stress is, you know, we can talk, we can look at someone's cortisol profile and it's a mess, right? So they're super stressed and we tell them, okay, you need to manage your stress. And they're like, I don't even know where to start and their stress and in our modern day there's stress coming from not having enough money not having enough time you know having so many demands on you professionally and from all the people in your family you're filling so many roles and you know you ask a woman like well go do more of what you love and they're like I don't even know what makes me happy anymore it's always about all these other things and 
women are really important, right? They run the families, they you know keep this place, this planet going. So we really wanted to focus too on how to help women rediscover their joy and do more things that just make them happy because that's one of, I think, the overlooked things when we talk about women feeling tired and unhappy and stressed. So um, that's our that's our book. It's called Hangry, and it is out June 4th, so very soon. We're having a bunch of um, bonuses for pre-order that will be available in about two weeks. So. But it is available for pre-order on places like Amazon now. Amazing. Easy. We'll post that in the show notes for sure. Yeah, sure. Okay, so where else can we find more information about working with you and learning from you? Yeah, I get asked that all the time, I think, because I do so many other things if I still see patients, and I definitely do, and I do have room for new patients right now because the book is done. So um, my website and on Instagram and Facebook, I'm Better by Dr. Brooke. So Instagram and Facebook, you can find me there, and betterbydrbrooke.com is my website. And there's a couple free things on my website that I can give you a link to. One is the list of nutrients if you're on the pill and what to do if you're transitioning off. So there's a free protocol for how to get off the pill or how to, um, you know, some things you think about taking. So recap of the things we talked about today. And then the lab guide. I find that to be another really good free re resource for women to just print that out and kind of get familiar with, you know, if you're going to get your estradiol checked, your estrogen, what day, if you're going to get a thyroid panel, what test you actually need, some really overlooked things like evaluating iron and B vitamins and things like that. So it's a really good free resource. I've gotten really good feedback on that. So I can give you the links for those too. Yes, please. Super thank helpful. You. Okay. Well, thank you so much. All that information is incredible. I feel like we could do another six or seven hours or so on this topic. Sure. So we <laughs> might need to have you back again, but I feel like this is such a good start and a great jumping off point. On the next episode of To Birth and Beyond, we have Lori Forner, physiotherapist who specializes in pelvic health and is host of the Pelvic Health Podcast. Lori has a deep clinical interest in supporting those with pelvic pain, as well as balancing pelvic floor dysfunctions within sport and fitness. We also get to speak with Lori about her work and research as she's currently pursuing a PhD in the field of pelvic floor health. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 